Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of the Gut Doctor Podcast. Today, we're going to talk inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD. We've done prior episodes in IBD. You know, we've done IBD in pregnancy. We've done extra intestinal manifestations of IBD. But today, we're going to do more of an IBD overview. And to help me go through this overview of a very large topic, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Rohit Singhania. Dr. Singhania has been practicing for 11 years and was the IBD clinic and clinical research director at Bay State prior to joining us at CTGI. Rohit, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Neil. It is a pleasure to be here, and I'm a fan of the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Rohit. I, I appreciate the feedback. Uh, honestly, the podcast has been a great way for me to learn from my colleagues, so I'm enjoying it as well. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where to start since IBD is such a broad topic, but let's do a little pathophysiology first. What is IBD? Sure. So IBD broadly is inflammatory bowel disease. And it's usually comprised of two common conditions uh, called Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Both of these conditions are chronic, relapsing and remitting conditions, oftentimes lifelong, and present with symptoms like abdominal pain, diarrhea, urgency, rectal bleeding, and weight loss. Fortunately, we have an ever-growing armamentarium of treatment options to keep symptoms under control and ensure that our patients eventually have a good and normal quality of life. Uh, we do not know still what exactly causes these conditions, but we're learning more every year. For example, broadly, this condition develops, we now know, by interaction of several factors, including environmental factors, an altered gut microbiome, which is the bacteria in the intestines, a dysfunctional immune system in a genetically predisposed individual. So it takes multiple hits to result in IBD. Can you tell me more about how the genetics and environment, environment interplay here? Sure. So first of all, IBD is not a hereditary disease, but it does appear in people with a genetic predisposition. It's a little bit more common, for example, Crohn's disease in, twin, in twins. Uh, in these patients, interactions with different environmental factors, for example, infections, tobacco use, etc., they trigger an abnormal immune response in the intestines, which persists over time. Various germs or microbial have been connected to the development of inflammatory bowel disease, but none have been confirmed as its cause. Antigens, which are substances that induce an immune response and which are found in the intestinal lumen or passageways of our gut, are believed to be the cause of inflammation of the bowels. That's fascinating. Um, you know, we always talk about uh, various germs and antigens and the microbiome. And, you know, it's interesting that the, all that's interplay here. Uh, what symptoms should our listeners look out for? So for Crohn's disease, uh, usually abdominal pain and many times in the right lower quadrant of the belly, uh, 
watery, loose bowel movements or diarrhea, and weight loss are the predominant symptoms. While for its sister condition, the ulcerative colitis, urgency and rectal bleeding are the predominant symptoms. Pain usually is not common in ulcerative colitis. And so whenever pain is present, this should prompt the clinician to rule out other causes like an abscess or infectious collection or a fissure or a crack in the intestinal lining, or sometimes even cancer. And conversely, bleeding is not common in Crohn's disease and should prompt further evaluation, in my opinion. Often enough, these symptoms are confused and clubbed together by patients and clinicians alike. But I think taking a careful history is so very important for this condition. This also helps us define the severity of disease. And so there are some tools like the Harvey Bradshaw Index, which is relevant in Crohn's disease, and the MU score for ulcerative colitis. They're very, very useful in sort of defining the disease activity and severity. So now these scores, whether it's Mayo score or the Harvey Bradshaw Index, typically incorporate colonoscopy findings, uh, which takes me to my next question of diagnostic steps. Uh, what is your diagnostic algorithm? Yeah, so uh, diagnosis for these conditions, um, unfortunately, there is no single test that diagnoses these, but it's a combination of multiple uh, data points. The first step is to take a good history. And I know I'm probably repeating myself, but I cannot overstate the importance of this step in this condition, given that it can be confused with other conditions like irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, acute infections, uh, hemorrhoidal bleeding, fissures, etc. And overlapping nature of these symptoms in many similar conditions, benign or malignant. Uh, another point is that the acute versus chronicity of the symptoms usually helps distinguish infectious versus inflammatory process. Age, for example, also helps distinguish uh, between uh, you know, onset of this condition. Subsequently, once we have gotten an adequate history and sort of have a suspicion that this is Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or inflammatory bowel disease in general, we get labs and and stool testing. And then generally we end up scheduling a colonoscopy, which is an exam with a camera inside the large intestine while the patient is sedated. So what are you looking for on colonoscopy? So we are looking for redness of the lining of the intestine, altered appearance, bleeding lesions, ulcers, all of which indicate presence of inflammation, which is the hallmark of these conditions. For example, in Crohn's disease, the classic finding is patchy afte in terminal ileum and sometimes in the large intestine. You know, these are tiny ulcers surrounded by a red uh, sort of halo. And in ulcerative colitis, however, there is continuous redness and inflammation uh, signs, as I talked about, starting in the rectum and generally pro uh, progressing more proximal. So you've done a great history and now you've done the colonoscopy, you've taken the biopsies, uh, pathology confirms inflammatory bowel disease. So obviously before we get into medical management, are there any general diet or lifestyle tips you suggest? Absolutely. Absolutely. So an important question that is usually on the top of most patients' minds, but scientific data, unfortunately is somewhat eluding. So during the initial phase, I generally recommend 
you know, a light but nutritious diet devoid of dairy for a couple of weeks while we get the symptoms under control. From a lifestyle perspective, I recommend stress management, regular exercise, plenty of sleep, which helps the healing process and taking time off work, given how stressful these symptoms can be. All of these can help the patient heal up and deal with the challenging symptoms of these conditions. Now, if someone has a stricture or a narrowing on an initial presentation with the above workup, then I do recommend a low fiber diet to prevent blockage of that narrowing. I feel like all those lifestyle recommendations would be great for all of us, stress management, exercise, sleep. Um, we could all benefit from those. So, all right, they've done the initial therapy. Yeah, they've done the initial dietary and lifestyle changes. Uh, let's get into medications a little bit. And I say a little bit since I know there are a lot of options here and there are a lot of nuances as to when to use what medication. So why don't we stick with the general categories of medications? Um, do you want to start with the oral options first? Yes, absolutely. So for Crohn's disease, so I'll divide it into the two conditions, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So for Crohn's disease, generally oral steroid therapy called budesonide and sometimes a stronger uh, medication called prednisone can help calm symptoms down rapidly. And this can be fairly quick within a week or two. For pain, I like to prescribe an antispasmodic therapy once infections like C. diff have been ruled out or Clostridium difficile. And I usually get good feedback from the patients using these medications. Uh, for diarrhea, we recommend using lopramide to help control the symptoms. All these are oral medicine. Now, for ulcerative colitis, um, a category of medications called misalamines are generally the first-line treatment in most patients and have an excellent response and time to respond. These are generally available as an oral pill but also available as a suppository or an enema that can be taken from the uh, uh, bottom. Uh, but wait, we also have some fascinating newer therapies called jack inhibitors as oral agents for ulcerative colitis recently. Yes, yes, we do. Um, I, I guess as an aside, can you tell us a little more about these new oral agents and how they differ from the classic biologic agents which, or the IV ones, which we're gonna talk about shortly? Yes, yes. The most important difference of these newer medications, which are in the category of modifying the immune system, um, is that they are oral and can be taken as a pill compared to the biologic medications, which we'll talk shortly, which are mostly an IV injection or a subcutaneous injection, it's usually an injection. These oral pills are quite effective. They're relatively safe and easy to take uh, for treating inflammatory bowel disease. And I think we are going to see more and more progress in this area with newer agents, several are under investigation. They seem to target different pathways, which the biologic treatments or IV medicines did not target before, and overall may have fewer side effects. I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, the fact that it can be oral and it can be effective. Um, so let's talk about these IV medications or the, you know, the quote unquote classic biologics. Sure. So for sicker patients at presentations, we generally end up going to biologic IV treatments. And there are several categories in this. Anti-TNF therapies like infliximab, adalimumab, 
anti-integrin therapies like mibimuzumab and anti-IL-1223 therapies like ustekunumab. Uh, there are some newer ones coming shortly. All these names are quite tongue twisters, uh, but there are several of these medicines available to be taken and they're very effective in controlling uh, the symptoms and healing up the gut lining. Yeah, we could probably devote an entire episode or two to each of these. Uh, so we will save the discussion for another time. Um, let, let's move on. What if medications don't work? When do we get our surgical colleagues involved? Yeah, this is a very important question since unfortunately many patients require surgery. Uh, but thankfully, our armamentarium for these medications is fairly broad now, and we can use several therapies, sometimes in quick succession, to achieve control of symptoms. And also because the therapeutic options are literally exploding. Um, sometimes it may be helpful to see an IBD specialist, I say quote, quote, because these are gastroenterologists who focus mainly in this area and there are just so many options and, and these are complex treatments. However, in certain situations, surgical interventions upfront can be very, very helpful. For Crohn's disease, these can be abscesses or of infectious collection that can be painful, fistulas and bowel blockages or rarely uh, malignancy or cancer, which may require surgery upfront. For ulcerative colitis, there's a presentation where we call it acute severe ulcerative colitis or fulminant colitis, uh, where the patient gets really sick, sick really fast. Uh, that's one situation. And the other two are when there's a cancer or malignancy or the disease is refractory to initial treatment. Great. I mean, those are important points for our primary care listeners, you know, especially who may see some of these clinical presentations first. And so they know when to refer to an IBD specialist and when to refer to colorectal surgeons. Uh, obviously with all these conditions, it's always gonna be a team approach. Um, so let's say now we have our patient under control on medication. There are a few maintenance things we recommend such as dermatology and ophthalmology evaluations. What else is part of routine health maintenance for our IBD patients? That's a great question. There's so much to be done and the care is so complex. Uh, most patients or all patients with IBD generally require a full review and update of vaccination, uh, given that this is an immune system disorder and infections are a common sort of side effect of therapy and of the disease process. So routine clinical monitoring for infections and treatment related side effects is needed. Also, sometimes they can develop coexistent or new onset autoimmune conditions. And since this is a malabsorption disorder, vitamin and mineral deficiencies need to be monitored closely. Some of the common ones are vitamin B12 deficiency, vitamin D deficiency, and iron deficiency. I generally recommend that patients continue regular follow-up with their primary care physician and the IBD specialist once they have sort of controlled the disease, which we call remission. Uh, they should follow up at least every six months. Uh, when they're in an acutely active state called a flare, then I recommend closer follow-up every few weeks until they go into remission. Also, uh, routine screening intervals for tests like pap smear, skin cancer, for colon cancer screening, they are usually somewhat modified in these patients and need to be surveilled for more closely. 
Uh, you just mentioned colon cancer screening. And I know this has been always somewhat of a moving target. I know there are nuances here, but how often do you typically bring these patients back for a colonoscopy to look at their colon lining? So as per the recent evidence and the stride guidelines, we individualize this approach. Uh, we do know that clinical symptoms or, or their relief can be misleading in these patients. This is often known as clinical remission. The holy grail in 2022 is to achieve healing of the lining of the intestine, which is associated with reduced risks of hospitalizations, excuse me, surgeries, and emergency department visits, not to mention the improvement in overall quality of life and eventually reduced risk of colon cancer. This is called endoscopic remission and requires a colonoscopy at least in six to 12 months, if not sooner, after modifying treatment in a sick patient or starting a new therapy. Again, this approach has to be individualized as some other biomarkers like CRP, stool fecal calprotectin or fecal calprotectin uh, can also give us some indication as to how the patient is doing. But re really, sooner we can document mucosal healing with colonoscopy, that really is the treatment target in 2022. Or else we need to keep modifying or adding uh, treatment until we can achieve this goal. Wow, Rohit, this has been fantastic. Uh, not only did you give us an overview, you just laid out the holy grail for IBD in 2022. Um, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, you know, I really look forward to doing another episode with you in the future. I hope everyone enjoyed this overview of inflammatory bowel disease, and we will see all of you next time. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gut Doctor Podcast. For additional information about today's topic, please visit ConnecticutGI.org. Your feedback is important to us, so please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Stay tuned for more episodes of The Gut Doctor, and if you think you may need to see a gastroenterologist, just trust your gut.